Welcome to the Ottawa Business Journal's live broadcast of what changing COVID-19 restrictions mean for employers. I'm Michael Kern from the Ottawa Business Journal. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, we've got a great topic. In fact, this is one of the biggest uh, audiences we've ever had for a live broadcast. So thank you uh, so much. There's obviously some great interest in this. As recent Omicron wave slows down, public health officials are easing pandemic restrictions. In some cases, they're dropping indoor capacity limits, dropping vaccine passports, even maybe uh, ending indoor mask use. Meanwhile, many employers have spent months uh, creating and implementing vaccine policies to help control the spread of COVID-19. So those two things are going opposite directions. And with all these pandemic uh, changes afoot, the question is, should employers consider altering their policies? As all of this plays out, something else is happening in the world of employment law, specifically as it relates to these pandemic-related policies. Employers and unions have been eagerly awaiting legal decisions on the propriety of mandatory vaccine policies. So guess what? Those decisions are now coming. All of this uh, might leave you feeling a little bit uh, overwhelmed, but do not dread. In today's show, we're joined by two associates from Eamon Harden LLP, one of Ottawa's leading labor and employment law firms. They will provide the guidance you need to make some decisions as things continue to evolve. Let's meet our guest now. Our first guest is Neil Juba, an associate at Eamon Harden. Welcome, Neil. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having us. We've got a great topic, so I'm happy to uh, have you here. And you're joined by one of your colleagues at the firm. Our second guest is Patrick Twagiri Yezu, and also an associate at Eamon Harder. There is Patrick. Thanks for having us, Michael. The gang's all here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick, I'm going to start with you. So, you know, we're two years, as I indicated, into this pandemic, and employers yeah. have worked really hard uh, to think about the policies they need. And now everything seems to be shifting. What are your thoughts on this, Neil? Yeah, you know, I've reflected back on that, uh, Michael, because we're, we're heading on to March 13th, and that's the, the date in my calendar where in 2020 things really started to shift, um, especially for Patrick and I in our universe. It was just almost spiraled, and, and we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Uh, I can't help but get the feeling that at certain points, we're kind of one step forward, two steps back. But I think now we're starting to get at a point where there's a bit more clarity. Uh, and by a bit, I mean a very little bit. And, and sort of we can hopefully uh, forge a bit of a path forward, knowing that maybe some of these things are under control now. And uh, we'll be get some point shortly be able to get to something that resembles normalcy once again. So I, it's been it's been difficult. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're right. I, you know, it's, it's hard to make any predictions. Every prediction seems to be a wrong one in the pandemic. But, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, we're getting back to a little bit of a sense of normal. And for many businesses, of course, that means bringing people back to offices. Patrick, I want to get you involved here. You know, one of the other things we're going to explore in today's um, uh, live broadcast uh, relates to these rulings that have come out. So, uh, you know, I guess these rulings are just a demonstration, uh, Patrick, that employment law is always evolving, whether it's the pandemic or anything else. Absolutely. I think that one of the, the most important things that, that we've realized, and Neil and I deal with this every day uh, in terms of 
what's happening in the legal world versus what's happening in people's everyday lives. But this is an issue that affects, you know, obviously the legal context, but also affects people in their everyday lives. And what we'll see is that uh, these decisions, which, which mostly come out of the uh, the, the unionized context are certainly starting to change things or starting to, to give us some guidance. But what we'll also realize is that it always depends on the context and one decision may make someone happy and maybe not make an, another party happy. And it's it's sort of like waiting for uh, waiting for a referee at a football game or during the Super Bowl to, to make a call on a on a penalty, depending on what you're looking for as an employer or as a union or, or an employee, uh, you might be happy with the results or you, you might not be. So it all depends on what the context is. I, I like the football analogy. We don't get the benefit of video review, though, Patrick. So <laughs> no. I don't no, think we, we just can't rewind life and yeah. say, oh, that's actually what happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, gentlemen, that's a great, uh, great way to ease in today's show. Let's take a look at today's agenda. We've broken the show down, as we always do into three topics that I think are really relevant to people tuning in today. Topic number one is legal decisions on mandatory vaccine policies. The second topic is what those legal decisions really mean for employers. And then in topic number three, we're gonna look specifically at what those, the easing of public health measures mean to these employer policies that are uh, put in place. Uh, we'll end off uh, with questions from the audience. So that's going to happen sometime around 1225. And a reminder, if you're watching this on YouTube or any other social media platform, you can ask your questions there. And we've got uh, a producer in the background looking for those questions to uh, bring them to us. So gentlemen, let's dive right into our first topic, which is legal decisions on mandatory vaccine policies. You know, we're going to kick things off with you. There's been several legal decisions related to mandatory vaccine policies by employers. Can you give us an update and summary on some of those decisions, Neil? Absolutely. Uh, there have been about seven or eight that we'd like to talk about this morning, just giving kind of some quick summaries. Um, they're a good measuring stick of, of where we think things are going to go. Um, now, the unionized uh, universe, things tend to happen a lot quicker because the parties have access to arbitration much faster than, for example, parties would have access to the courts. That's why we're seeing the decisions coming out in the unionized context versus the non-unionized. Very, very interesting issue, at least from a legal perspective. You've got many competing interests involved. You've got the right to, to choose whether you're not to be vaccinated or not. We all know that's a, a, a super emotionally charged topic. We won't need to get into that. We've got the notion of human rights and accommodation. Um, privacy and protection of medical uh, information. Well, what if I don't want to tell my employer that I've been vaccinated? What business is it of theirs to, to obtain this information? From an employer's perspective, of course, you've got the occupational health and safety. So are you taking all reasonable steps in the circumstances uh, to protect your employees? So we've seen this sort of all coming together. And, and uh, as Michael mentioned, we're seeing it in the unionized context. Uh, the first decision um, the UFCW case in Paragon. Now this involved uh, Paragon, which is a, a security services provider. Uh, what they had done, they had introduced a policy and it said that all employees would be required to be vaccinated by a certain date. And interesting in this facet, uh, this case as well, is that uh, there was also a requirement that if the third party where they would be sending their security guards required mandatory vaccination prior to this October 31st date, then it was expected that the employees would abide and be vaccinated. Of course, there were, uh, in the policy it was written in, there was exemptions for health and safety um, reasons. If you could provide a reason why you could not get vaccinated for a medical reason, 
you could potentially be exempt. This was one of the first uh, cases that actually went before an arbitrator, and it was challenged on the basis that it was non-compliant with the Human Rights Code. And based on the information that the arbitrator had at the time, uh, he found that it was both reasonable and it was compliant with the Human Rights Code. And it was also the employer was meeting its duties under the Occupational Health and Safety Act to protect its workers in the circumstances. And the policy was, was upheld in this case. Uh, Patrick is going to speak to the second case. Yeah, so in uh, the second case, which is Electrical Safety Authority and, and power and the Power Workers Union, um, it's it's a little bit different from what Neil has just addressed. And basically in contracts, in this particular case, uh, the arbitrator upheld the union's grievance with respect to the Electrical Safety Authority mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy. So this particular policy required that all staff be fully vaccinated by a certain date, depending on an employee's job and subject to a valid exemption under the Ontario Human Rights Code. And what it said was that non-compliant employees face discipline up to and including termination. Uh, and also non-compliant employees could, at the employer's discretion, be placed on an unpaid leave of absence. Now, the union challenged the policy and their position was that it was unreasonable and a significant overreach of the employer's management rights. And if you're in a unionized context, uh, certainly those are terms that are familiar to you. And the arbitrator found that there was no evidence of any workplace dangers or hazards associated with the employer's occupational health and safety concerns or any evidence that these concerns had manifested themselves in any actual problems in the workplace that could not be addressed through a combined vaccination or testing regime or other reasonable means. So basically, the arbitrator found that that the employer had gone too far in this context. And the arbitrator also found that although the employer's concerns were legitimate, they did not at that point in time justify imposing a mandatory COVID-19 vaccination regime with threats of discipline or discharge. Now, the arbitrator concluded that the policy was unreasonable to the extent of its potential consequences for non-compliance. The employer was then directed to provide a testing option to unvaccinated employees. But I think that the key thing to remember in this particular case is that the arbitrator indicated that if problems occurred in the future that could no longer be adequately addressed by a combined vaccination or testing regime, Paul, uh, the policy could be revised so as to allow for the employer to place vaccinated employees on administrative leave. The next decision, the Bunge Hamilton Canada, interesting one because it involved a, a provincially regulated employer, but they leased land from a, a Crown Corporation for Transport Canada, actually, not a Crown Corporation. So federally regulated land. And of course, we know that at the federal level, um, there were mandates from the government about requiring that federal employees be vaccinated. So it was one of the first questions of, OK, well, what if a third party, this case being the federal government in Canada is mandating the vaccines, what impact does that have on me as a, a provincially regulated employer? So of course, the employer in this case implemented a mandatory uh, vaccination policy to comply with Transport Canada directions. Um, and similar to many policies, it required that uh, employees be vaccinated by a certain date, um, provide proof. And if you're unable to get vaccinated for medical reasons, of course, you had to provide that justification to the employer. So this again was challenged um, as with the other ones on the basis it was a reasonable exercise of management rights. That's of course the key word that we're gonna hear in the unionized context. Uh, but they also challenged it that it wasn't proper that you were requiring employees to disclose uh, the personal health information. In this case, were you vaccinated or not? 
so in this case, uh, the arbitrator actually upheld the policy and it was reasonable. Uh, and that requiring that your employees be vaccinated because a third party mandated that they needed to be vaccinated to be on site was in fact reasonable. And in this case, it was, it was sort of one of the first ones where the arbitrator said, well, I'm going to find it reasonable. Um, and I note that discipline or termination might be an outcome if you don't get vaccinated. That's something that can be addressed later on if it happens. But he didn't address it up front saying, no, you can't have a mandatory or a, a uh, termination clause as a possible outcome for not abiding by the policy. If that happens in the future, it can be dealt with at that time. So in, uh, in Power Workers Union and uh, Alexicon Energy, this case, in this particular case, the, empl uh, the employer had implemented a mandatory COVID-19 policy, as, as we're seeing with all the other ones. And this policy was requiring the staff to provide proof of full vaccination or of an exemption under the Ontario Human Rights Code by February 21st, 2022. The policy also indicated that unvaccinated employees or those unwilling to disclose their vaccination status would have to bear the cost of rapid antigen testing and contribute to the cost of PCR testing. Non-compliant employees would then be placed on an unpaid leave of absence and would potentially be subject to termination. The union, non-surprisingly, uh, challenged this policy as being overly broad in the circumstances. And they also objected to the requirement that employees bear any testing costs. So this was really a sort of a pretty important piece of this particular case. And the arbitrator concluded that the general policy of an employer requiring vaccination was reasonable in the circumstances, particularly in light of uh, the employer's health and safety obligations, the fact that it provided an essential service and available scientific data on the transmissibility of COVID-19 and uh, the, efficacy, the efficacy of vaccination. So that was really, uh, again, as we'll see today, the data and the and the the scientific piece is very important um, in terms of, of of defending the reasonable nature of your policy. And uh, the arbitrator, however, concluded that the policy was not reasonable to the extent that its application to remote workers who were not expected to return to the office for many months and to employees working exclusively outside or who could be accommodated such that they worked exclusively outside. So. It was applicable and reasonable to a number of employees, but not all employees. So in light of his findings, the arbitrator uh, did not deem it necessary to rule on the cost of, test of the testing issue, um, but did remain seized to deal with the issue if necessary at a later time. The last one on this list of the policy ch uh, challenges uh, was a Chartwell uh, case. And of course that involves a, a long-term care home, which we've heard a lot about over the past two years and the difficulties that uh, COVID has presented there. Um, again, so this was a policy that was implemented that required vaccination and then proof of valid vaccination by uh, September of this case. Um, and it also had indicated that as of a specific date, which was following month in October, that um, all non-compliant employees would be paid on an unpaid leave of absence and would be potentially subjected to a determination. Uh, ultimately, and jump through these just because uh, for time restrictions, uh, the union challenge is based on the, uh, the disciplinary component saying that it was unreasonable in the context. And that, again, this is where we see kind of the nuances of the unionized context. Um, the fact that the, the policy was implemented without the consultation of the union first, which was a requirement of the collective agreement, was an issue. Um, and so the arbitrator agreed with the union in, case, in this case and had, did find that the employer had breached the collective agreement in failing to consult with the union. And then 
here's where you get kind of the, the, the wishy-washy and why we're in a funny universe right now. The arbitrator accepted that the termination cause might be suitable in some circumstances, but then held that the policy was unreasonable and inconsistent um, to the extent that it included the termination as a pen, uh, potential consequence for the non-compliant employees. Uh, there is some strong language in this decision. We don't really have time to get into it, but um, while there was a finding that in this case, the policy was not upheld, um, the, the arbitrator did caution, like this isn't a message to the community that you can just flaunt whatever directive uh, employers put out there or policies. So kind of, you know, back and forth, uh, not coming down very hard, which again is difficult from the guidance perspective of, of where do we land on these things. Again, so that was sort of the policy. Um, and I'd mentioned earlier on one of the cases I had talked about where the arbitrator had said, well, we'll deal with termination if it comes up, you can deal with that at that point. So these next three cases are actually individual grievances and this is where people, uh, employees face the consequence because they hadn't complied with the policy. Yeah. Uh, so the first one is uh, Teamsters uh, Local Union and Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And in that particular case, the griever was an employee that uh, worked in Scotiabank Arena's convention division, and he was placed on unpaid leave of absence for non-compliance with the employer's mandatory COVID-19 policy. And the policy required that all employees be fully vaccinated by October 31st, 2021, or face being placed on an unpaid leave of absence until potentially even... Uh, and potentially even termination. Now, the griever refused to disclose his vaccination status. That was the issue in that case. And the union argued that the employer had violated the griever's seniority rights, and more fundamentally, that he should not have been required to disclose his private medical information in the circumstances. Now, the arbitrator also concluded that the weight of arbitral authority supported imposition of COVID-19 vaccination mandates in the workplace in order to protect workers from transmission, particularly where employees work in close proximity to each other. Now, similarly, the arbitrator concluded that employers are entitled to seek disclosure of vaccination status to the extent necessary to administer such a mandate. The arbitrator finally rejected the union's argument in respect of seniority rights, since the employer had established that being vaccinated was a reasonable and indeed necessary qualification for the performance of work in the circumstances. And overall, uh, the policy was found to be reasonable and, and an appropriate approach to meeting the employer's obligations under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. The Hydro One decision. Uh an interesting one because it actually speaks to the idea of uh, an alternative, which would be providing a test if you're not willing to get vaccinated or not, not willing to disclose your vaccination status. So again, uh, Hydro One had introduced a policy requiring um, proof of vaccination by a certain date. There are 12 individuals in this case who hadn't complied with that. Um, but the policy did say that all those unvaccinated or those who refused to disclose vaccination status, um, if they wanted to work, they'd be required to undergo regular uh, rapid antigen testing um, prior to reporting to work. And of course, if you weren't going to subject yourself to the testing, you couldn't come to work. So again, union uh, claimed that it, it was a violation of the collective agreement, but, um, in this case, that the employer was acting unreasonably. But interesting in this case, because this was arbitrator Stout, who earlier found in a policy grievance that a policy was unreasonable in the circumstances. He disagreed with the union in this case, and he said the policy was reasonable and it was necessary to address the health and safety concern in this particular workplace arising out of the pandemic. And he also said that uh, because the employees had reasonable notice of this policy, they could have adjusted accordingly. Again, that was a reasonable imposition of this policy. Um, 
and again, in this one, a bit different, but um, the arbitrator did note that uh, the employees do not have to be provided with accommodation um, through remote work if they've been provided with a reasonable alternative. And here, the reasonable alternative was the rapid antigen testing. So again, looking at the policy as a whole, looking at the workplace, uh, the arbitrator in this case found it was reasonable policy. And uh, the, the final case that we're looking at is another individual one um, in Algoma Steel um, v. United Steelworkers uh, Local 2251. And this one was actually our very own Porter Heffernan, which I'm sure um, some of you maybe have worked with in the past or have heard of. Um, and he was arguing that a termination in the context of a failure to comply with the mandatory vaccination policy should be upheld. Um, however, in that case, it's important to note that the termination was based on the deemed termination clause in the party's collective agreement that was triggered by the griever's absence from work rather than the actual policy itself. And specifically in this case, the company instituted an eligibility requirement to attend on-site in response to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which broadly speaking required that as of January 1st, 2022, employees be able to affirm that they are asymptomatic at the time of entry onto the employer's premises and pass self-screening tool and have available a, co a negative COVID-19 test result or proof of full vaccination. Otherwise, the policy provided uh, employees would be excluded from the workplace. The policy further provided that non-compliance could result in the employees being placed on a two-week unpaid leave of absence and potentially being subject to discipline up to and including termination for cause. So the griever whose position required to be on site in order to perform uh, his duties refused to be vaccinated or tested. Because the griever could not attend the workplace, he was absent from work for several consecutive shifts after January 1st, 2022. Uh, despite the wording of the policy, the employer had warned him on a number of occasions and on the basis of the deemed uh, provision in the collective agreement uh, that provided that an employee would be deemed terminated if absent for work for 10 consecutive days without re uh, reasonable excuse rather than on the basis of the policy. So on that basis, uh, he was disciplined and the arbitrator upheld the termination on the basis of this provision, finding that the griever's refusal to be tested was a reasonable excuse um, for being absent from work. And in the result at this point in time, we still have yet to see any arbitral dealings with terminations imposed specifically based on a mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy. Well, wow, <clears throat> that is a, those are a lot of findings. I was trying to keep score there, but I'm not sure if I'm reading this. I think it was three to two, and then I think it was two to one, but I could be completely wrong about that. But listen, listen, gentlemen, if, if nothing else, this demonstrates why we need both of you and and all these great employment lawyers, because I was picking up all sorts of points through that. So let's let's move on to number two. And I've seen in the comments, some people are saying, and what does this mean? Yeah. So let, let's go on to topic number two and say, what does all of that mean? And I appreciate we're probably talking a little bit about still a unionized environment, but maybe we'll start talking about the more private sector too. But let's, Neil, uh, hand things back to you. Absolutely. There's a lot to unpackage from that. Um, but what we're seeing is still a lot of caution from arbitrators when they're looking at these policies. Um, and whether or not, I, I think it's fair, if we had to do a, a very quick summary of, of what all these cases tell us, um, whether or not a policy will be deemed reasonable, it's going to be a very lawyerly response. It, it really depends on the circumstances of each case, right? So 
you know, you look at, are you a long-term care home? Because the, the considerations in that context or in a hospital setting are vastly different than considerations in, in an office setting, for example, where either people can work remotely or where you can physically space people. Um, really what's, what we see though in, in a lot of these, and, and we spoke very quickly about these decisions, they do flesh out a lot of issues, but um, a lot of these arbitrators and a lot of the evidence that is being placed before them um, there's a lot of scientific and public health evidence about COVID-19, about immunization, its efficacy, and about you know, how contagious a specific variant at a given point in time is. Um, also, what we're seeing too, and this is good news from the employer's perspective, is we're, we're seeing a lot of arbitrators really paying attention to uh, the notion of employers have health and safety obligations. And to what extent are these policies being implemented to help them meet their obligations under the Occupational Health and Safety Act? Again, the, the obligation being to take every reasonable precaution in the circumstances to protect the workers. So, yeah. Neil, I think that the other thing that we're seeing as well is that there are different considerations that tell us what relevant factors um, may lead to a particular determination or what it includes, especially as we move away from the non-unionized context. What we've seen, the types of factors that may may determine whether or not a particular policy is reasonable will be the current scientific and public health-based evidence. Uh, that's going to be important in terms of the transmission of COVID-19. And as uh, Neil has mentioned, the efficacy of immunization, the employer's ability to meet the occupational health and safety obligations will be important. The nature of the workplace will be important, as Neil has touched on, the configuration of the workplace and the proximity of workers uh, to others, uh, the particular workplaces, as we saw in one case, the fact that the employees could be accommodated by staying outside or by the fact that they were working from home, that'll be important. The scope of the application of the policy is important. The consequences for non-compliance is important. Uh, the scope of the collective agreements management rights clause will be important. And whether the collective agreement speaks to the issue of immunization. So maybe there's something in that collective agreement that already addresses it. But probably one of the most important factors that, that you'll be looking at as an employer will be the actual history of COVID-19 exposure or outbreaks within that particular workplace. Okay. All, all great stuff again. I mean, it, it, I guess it kind of underlines what, what we know to be true employment law, that it's going to be about the context. It's going to be about uh, the reasonableness of the policies and how it was implemented. Uh, but I heard both of you when you said at least the rulings help point out the important points to the arbitrators. Like, what are the factors that will be key? So that's uh, that's really uh, interesting. And again, I'm, it, it underlines, I think, that, that people watching employers need that professional advice because they need a one-on-one -on -one discussion with employment uh, law experts such as you gentlemen uh, to understand the context, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and the big lesson for us is there's no one size fits all. And, yeah. you know, as we begin to move hopefully forward um, and, and we see rates drop and not pick up again, um, you know, what is reasonable today on March 8th, 2020, 20, uh, 2022 may not be reasonable in October 8th of 2022 if cases have gone down and, you know, Will you need to adjust your policy accordingly? You know, those are things that uh, that we'll see kind of be flushed out a bit more in the coming months. Um, but also, when you're thinking about okay, where do we go from here, is, is something to, to uh, keep into mind. And of course, always go back to those the guidance that the arbitrators have have provided us. So, what's the problem? What are you trying to address with this policy? Yeah, no, I agree. Why do you need the steps that that you've put into it? 
And there's a bit of a segue there because I think underlying those decisions, as you gentlemen said, again, is is some of the science, right? So like, what is the best science saying about, uh, you know, vaccines and uh, how they're helping people protect each other? So let's let's transition to topic number three, which is the easing of public health uh, measures. Um, we, we have seen, uh, it's the case here in Ottawa and Ontario, that uh, there's no capacity limit, so for the most part, on... Uh, on indoor capacity limits, uh, you know, I think sports venues are a little bit different. Um, you know, you no longer have to show uh, your vaccine passport to enter uh, many restaurants or bars. Uh, there's talk about um, ending indoor mask use. So, Neil, let's come come back to you on topic number three here. So, as as public health officials give different guidance, does it mean that employers need to go back and rethink their mandatory vaccine policies? It's definitely worth saying keep up to speed with what is being said from the science perspective. Um, again, we are getting varying accounts of where we are and where we hope to be. Um, and you can't help but think some of these decisions about, for example, removing uh, masking mandates. Well, how much is that driven by there's election coming up versus uh, focusing on the science side of things? So certainly keep up to speed with, with what public health is saying. Um, their guidance is important. And what we've learned is when people are required to make a decision on a policy, they really pay attention to what the science and what the medical professionals are saying about transmissibility, where we need to be, and how we can uh, implement measures to hopefully get out of this quicker. Yeah, and I think on, on our end, what's really important is we expect that in deciding when and how to ease public health measures, government will be looking at some of the same type of scientific and public health based evidence in respect of transmission of COVID-19 and the efficacy of immunization. So in other words, government will essentially perform an ongoing assessment as to potential health and safety risks for individuals in light of current science and evidence, as well as associated potential um, for legal liability. And, and, and what's interesting there is that uh, what works in the context of public policy doesn't necessarily mean you're off the hook as an employer. Um, there are different considerations. Sitting in a, a restaurant for half an hour without a mask on or potentially without even having to be immunized is a different question than sitting across uh, a desk for eight hours of a day with someone who isn't uh, who, who isn't vaccinated. So there are, there are different um, considerations, a bit of a more onerous consideration for an employer from the perspective of the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Um, but it's understanding that that both the government and you as an employer start at the same point, which is the question of the science. What does the is the science tell us? Has it allowed us to ease ease up a little bit, or does it mean that we have to, to still kind of press on? Well, well that's great. Listen, we have a few uh, questions, so maybe we'll transition to our Q&A. If anyone's watching, reminder, you can use your social media platform to ask those questions. Some of them uh you know i want to get them out there gentlemen uh they're they're a little bit we've touched on you know here's a here's a question here uh melanie's saying interesting what this tells us about non-unionized uh workplaces so sp specifically on that one uh i guess i'll pose this question to you neil or patrick uh we heard a lot about those unionized environments it, it is are those rulings directly applicable i guess to private sector employers is maybe what i would ask you I would say that they do provide instructions. Are they directly applicable? Not inherently, because there sometimes okay. are some questions or some nuances, like we talked about, is this a violation of the management rights clause, which you wouldn't have in the private sector, for example. 
mentioned that case about, well, the union needed to be consulted before implementing a policy and they weren't. And that was one of the key findings in, in finding it wasn't. Um, but fair to say, like, you know, the employment context and, and the arbitration context they use, they can use some very similar principles. Now, and I think on an issue like this, where it's, is this policy proper? Um, you know, is it over far reaching? I think there's a lot of guidance to be had from the arbitral community, like looking at the science. What do we have? Like, what are you trying to address with this policy? Why do you need to have what you have in the policy? I think um, and again, they talk about human rights. That's going to apply in the unionized context and outside the unionized context. You look at some privacy or, or private health uh, medical information. That applies equally, those two concepts to a unionized, non-unionized as well. They'll have similarities in that respect as well. So it's more, is it going to tell us exactly what's going to happen in non-unionized context? No, but it's the best yardstick that we've got at the moment. Yeah. And I'd add that it may be applicable in, in, in so much as that if it's if it's a comparable sector, that might be useful, something that you can look at. Uh, and the other piece as well is that if it isn't a comparable sector, but a sector in which COVID-19 is, is a bigger issue and its consequences are more dire and you're looking at your policy and maybe your policy is, is more strict than what uh, in what other sectors uh, are permitting or are viewed as reasonable in other sectors, even if they're unionized. Again, it's as, as, uh, as Neil has mentioned, it's sort of a, a yard marker in terms of you know, what to look at, what the considerations are. And also arbitral decisions are not um, are not as binding as, as court decisions. Uh, what you will look at is that they, they most they more so demonstrate what you should be um, geared towards or or what you should be inclined to decide or they, they, they're used as persuasion and not so much as precedent. Um, but but for the most part, practically speaking, they will indicate what what arbitrators are most most likely to do, and then in the non-unionized context, uh, it'll be looked at for sure in terms of determining what may or may not be reasonable, even though it's not binding. I don't know if there's an easy question, uh, a quick easy answer to this question, but do we have a sense of when uh, there will be any judicial rulings, if that's the correct uh, phrase, on private sector uh, cases? Are are those coming soon? I anticipate they will. It's it's hard to say. Um, they do take a lot longer to get through the process to eventually to the point where you're in a hearing. And like most of the ones that have been held in, in the non-union context have been injunctions so far. And those don't really apply to is your policy reasonable? It's just should we put a hold on this right now for very specific reasons? Uh, I would anticipate, though, within, I would say, late spring, early summer, we might begin to start seeing some of these cases wind their way. Okay. Um, not necessarily in Ontario either. It could be coming from other provinces. It's all a matter of when it was uh, a claim was initially filed and how quickly they want to get through the process. And quite frankly, since we're on the topic of, of COVID, uh, how much of a backlog the courts have to get caught up with because they were closed for a period of time and, and they're playing catch up as well. That's a great point. I, I'm going to put this question on screen. I don't think either of you can answer it because you don't have a crystal ball. Uh, here comes the question now. Uh, maybe we'll try to our producer get it on. Let's try one more time. There you go. There you go. Have you seen uh, Have you seen the federal government also relaxing mandatory uh, vaccinations? So I don't. I don't think either of you is working in the HR department of the federal government. Um, but I will say, since we're sitting here in Ottawa, do, you know, do you think the federal government will help? 
determine how we evolve, even in the private sector. Like it seems like that what one of those one the the federal government took that lead on all federally regulated industries way back when, and then the the public sector kind of followed. So because we're here in Ottawa, gentlemen, do you think the public uh, the the presence of the federal government will help determine how this evolves? Yeah, I, if if I can jump in on that quickly, I'd say that. Um... It, it, it may, but I think what's interesting for the, the federal government is that they don't, there's a, a particular thought process for them that's a little different uh, than for most employers. So that's going to be uh, a big player and they can be held accountable if people are, are unhappy with their decisions in certainly a, a different manner as well. So I think that uh, they're looking at being leaders uh, in some ways in terms of what's happening and what decisions are being made, but they're also, uh, I would suspect, looking to limit their, uh, their risk factor from the perspective of, you know, that not people here in Ottawa aren't just employees; they're also voters. So making sure that there's yeah. a that there's a bit of a balance there in the decision making process. Um, so I think I think the the things that they're considering or the elements that they're looking at are are quite particular. I, I don't know what Neil thinks about this. I think yeah. I, I think at some point, you know, if the federal government were to begin to ease those restrictions, I, I would see the dominoes beginning to fall. Um, that's we really saw what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago with, with the issues on Parliament Hill. And once they get involved, yeah. things tend to happen very quickly. Uh, will that happen here? It's quite possible. Okay. Uh, they, they did come down and say, look, you know, all federal employees have to be vaccinated. Would it be a stretch for them to say that they're going to do that shortly? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But I think once that piece falls into place, I think that will be providing some guidance as to uh, and you know and, and we've heard treasury board right say you know, start coming back to work just kind of officially so i would think there's a relationship between those two right now someone that needs to come back to work there might be another discussion about mandatory vaccine this will take one more and again these are these are tough questions guys so you know do your best uh but the P patrick here is saying once mandatory indoor masking is removed can businesses still impose mandatory masking policy and i'm going to add for their employees let's not get into clients just keep this employment but so if if uh, ottawa public health or uh or the government of ontario says no more mandatory masks uh any quick response on whether an employer could say i don't care you still need to wear a mask yeah so i'd quickly first by start by saying uh great name by the person who's asking the question patrick uh great name uh and 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 i'll follow up by saying that as we've mentioned throughout this presentation what's required by the government and what an employer has to do are because of the issue they're intertwined but they're also quite separate and the the key factor here is the occupational health and safety act so it may come down to how other employees feel about having colleagues who aren't wearing masks or aren't vaccinated. So uh, the quick answer is that the employer can do basically what they feel is necessary to maintain the health and safety of the workplace, uh, but it still will be looked at and we'll, we'll ask the question as to whether or not it's reasonable. That's the question. The question isn't what can and can an employer do. The question is whether or not it's reasonable and, def and defendable. And what we've said is that the science is very, very key. Um, the, the, the keeping evidence of your decision making, the process that arrived to that decision is very key because that's what's going to determine whether or not it's it's reasonable within the circumstances. Good. Anything quick to add on that, Neil? Uh, absolutely. I would just say, too, as, as Patrick alluded to, the, the Occupational Health and Safety Act, I, I, to me, that's going to be a very important piece of legislation going forward because that is the employer's obligation to make sure that its employees are safe or take all reasonable 
precautions. And again, you know, if your assessment determines that, you know, masking still required despite Ottawa Public Health or whatever, uh, whichever local health um, agency says otherwise, if you can justify it and you have reasons to justify it and the science says, well, COVID's not gone yet, so it still gets transmitted the way it always has up until now, um, then that will be easier for an employer to uphold uh, a rule that would be, for example, masking, even though Ottawa Public Health, for example, says we don't need to mask anymore. Okay, we're a little in overtime, so uh, let's take a let's take a look at some of the takeaways from today's show. So we'll bring those takeaways up on screen now, and uh, maybe Neil will get you to kick off the first one, and we'll uh, alternate between you, gentlemen. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. As we've we've said, you know, these arbitrations decisions are helpful, and it's great that they were able to come out so quickly in this context because things change week by week, things are different day by day in some certain uh, circumstances, but. They're, of course, they're not determinative. As Patrick had mentioned, there are a certain set of analyses that they do in the arbitration context, uh, whether or not that's binding in the non-union context, not necessarily, um, but they will be instructive. And it's it's worth keeping in mind and keeping up to, to speed with what the arbitrators are saying about these policies as we go forward. Yeah, I think that, uh, as we've mentioned, the situation remains fluid. Neil addressed the fact that what's reasonable today may not be reasonable in October, um, whether it's, uh, you know, something can be more restrictive or less restrictive. So it's keeping in mind that things are changing, uh, continuing to keep an eye on the science, continuing to keep an eye on what public health authorities are telling us in terms of uh, what is and isn't uh, required, but also keeping an eye on what the trends of your own specific sector might be because something may be unreasonable um, for an employer as a whole, but maybe in your sector, um, things are happening in a particular way. So I think that that's something to keep in mind as well. Sure. And of course, the last point is just always document um, whatever evidence that goes into making these policies or making decisions if you're going to start to modify policies going forward. Um, what is the science saying? We've said that a lot today, but very, very important. What is public health saying? What are my employees saying? What are their concerns? And what do we need to address? And how do we best, uh, best address what we're coming up with, what we're hearing um, at the workplace level and adjust accordingly? That's great. And I that's the first time I've, maybe I've heard that to document uh, why you're taking the decision when the policy set. That That's a really interesting one. So listen, I'm sure of two things. I'm sure that you guys have helped people understand all of these rulings, what they mean. I know it's complicated. Uh, and then how to interpret uh, changing uh, public health regulations. And number two, I'm sure people are saying, I need to, I need to get some, uh, some expert advice on our specific situation. So let's bring up your contact slide and Neil will get you to go through your contact info there. And then Patrick, you can jump in. Okay. Yep. Well, I can be contacted at any time. Uh, phone number goes right to my cell phone. So even when I'm not in the office, as uh, most people aren't these days, I can be reached. Uh, and well as at ndzubahlaw.ca. And also note that our website uh, has a COVID-19 hub. So that's where we've accumulated uh, a lot of resources related to COVID-19. And as issues come out, as new decisions come out, as new pieces of legislation come out, um, we'll write about it. And you can find all that information on our website. That's right. And uh, 
I'm the one with the uh, the impossible last name here, Twagiraezu, and uh, so I could be found at uh, p Twagiraezu at, at ehlaw.ca. And the best part is that if you go on our website, we've got a, a people portion, so you can just copy paste the actual email, or or even uh, there's a link there, I'm sure. And of course, my my number is here as well. And so I, I, I'd echo what Neil has said. We're constantly updating the information on this. We understand that it's a it's a fast paced environment and things are changing uh, very quickly. And within each sector, things are moving at a different pace as well. So so we're trying to stay uh, up to speed on everything and, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate uh, all your time today, your expertise, you deciphering all of these decisions and the shifting environment. Uh, uh, we really do appreciate your time. Uh, be well and hope to see you really soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, listen, as we uh, sign off, uh, we did see lots of questions on, um, is this uh, is there a replay link for this show? And the easy, uh, easy answer is yes. So the same link you're watching live on becomes the replay link on uh, YouTube. And um, you'll be able to visit any of the Ottawa Business Journal social media channels as well, including LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook to see this uh, entire video uh, that will be posted momentarily. So if you're watching this and say, oh my goodness, this is something I need to share with our HR department or with my CEO, uh, that's how to get it. So I highly recommend uh, you, that you visit the ehlaw.ca website. I think that's a really good uh, point as we wrap up. Speaking of websites, I'd like if you visit our website, which is obj.ca, we post uh, original content on a daily basis. Uh, also, we have a great email newsletter called OBJ Today. It goes out Monday to Friday around four o'clock each day. And you can also follow uh, OBJ on social media, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, if you want to get notified, by the way, of new videos, we have over a thousand on our channel now. Uh, click the subscribe button, hit the little bell icon as well. That's all the time we have for today. A big thank you to Eamon Harnden for sponsoring this and Neil and Patrick for sharing all this time. That's all the time we have. Uh, be well and hope to see you soon. Bye-bye, everyone.